I want you to think how you would describe, maybe you should do this, describe to the person next to you the choir. (laughs) Have a good look at them. How would you describe the choir? The choir can be quiet at this point. Just describe them to the person sitting near you. The choir have got their own definition of this. What did you come up with? Did you hear that? She basically said you're brilliant. But uh, a faithful, dedicated set of people who turn up every week. Alright, just be quiet, be quiet. Just say, anybody else? A motley crew. Were you looking at your husband there? Uh, right? Generally tuneful. Tuneful? Enthusiastic singers? We could keep going and going and going, couldn't we? Please do. How would you describe the difference between an Englishman and a Scotsman? Not woman, man. Englishman and a Scotsman. Go on. Accent? How else? Scots are thrifty. <coughs> you are surrounded by Scots there, but <coughs> it's hard, isn't it? But generally, we have these kind of characteristics. How would you describe a Christian? You're going, oh, that's harder than a Scot and an Englishman. How would you describe a Christian? Well, Jesus has done that for us. You could have just said, look up Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 10. Because that is what Jesus has done in the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount. The start of the Sermon on the Mount. He went up the hill, (coughs) excuse me, to speak. And he sat down and he described, although we don't often recognize it in these terms, what it is to be a Christian. We started last week. He said the first characteristic of a follower of God, a follower of Christ, is that you are poor in spirit. And we said poor in spirit means that you don't look horizontally, you look vertically. That you look and you focus on God and that you attain to the standards that God has for us. So often we compare ourselves with one another, Englishman versus a Scotsman, etc., etc., how well am I doing versus so and so? And we do that. And we were talking last week about how, how uh, subtle that is in our lives. How we, we do that all the time. But Jesus said, number one characteristic is, of a believer is that you look to God. And in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the three chapters, five to seven, is really about the standards that God sets for us. And how we should compare ourselves against God and against, not against one another. And so he says things like, well, you say you haven't committed murder, but if you've got anger in your heart, if you said, you know, oh, and you've got irritated like that, it's the same thing. Why? Because against God's standards, he's saying, it's what's going on inside of you that really counts. And so that's the first characteristic, humility. 
recognizing where we are before God, not worrying about ourselves versus others. And the second characteristic that we're going to look at today is in Matthew chapter 5 verse 4. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now immediately, if you read that, what do you start thinking of? Grief, somebody who's lost a loved one. Because when we always talk about mourning, we generally think about somebody's lost a loved one. We pray for those, and we pray for God's comfort upon those who's lost, lost loved ones. If we look on the back of our notice sheet, we list people, members of this church who have passed away, but also up-to-date prayer requests for people whose members of their family and others have recently died, and they're in that mourning period. But Jesus is not saying, well, the second characteristic is that you have to have lost a loved one, is he? And I'm going to give you the comfort. Now, that's true that God gives us his comfort when we lose people we love. Do you remember in John 11, at the loss of Lazarus? Do you remember when Mary and Martha came to him and Jesus went and he wept? One of the few times that Jesus cried cried because of the loss that he saw around him and the mourning of the people for somebody they loved. And Jesus loved them too. Even though he knew that Lazarus was going to be risen again, he joined in that, that corporate mourning for the loss of loved one. There's also in the Bible another kind of mourning that we see. I love the illustration of... Uh, of Johnson, you know Johnson and Johnson, the old um, pharmaceutical company. Apparently, when Robert Johnson, the, ch- the chairman at the time, he used to make kind of flash visits on his different uh, um, factories and that to see what was going on, completely unannounced. He used to just turn up, walk in, see what was going on, and then write letters afterwards and say, like, this should be better, this should be better. What was this all about? There was one occasion, and apparently the manager of the factory got to hear that he was on his way about 30 minutes before he was due to arrive. And so he did like all of us do at home. What do you do when you know that somebody is going to come round and you've got 30 minutes? You immediately, you have that room, don't you? That room that nobody ever is allowed to go in. Where you just shove everything through the door, because if you open it, it's all going to come pouring out. All of us have that room. Well, what they did was, the manager quickly got everybody together. He's coming in 30 minutes. Clean up. I want this place clean. And they said, well, where are we going to put everything? He said, stick it on the roof. And then we'll be fine and we can get it all back down and sort it out afterwards. Chairman came. Went in, visited, called the manager over. Absolutely furious. He said, what is all that junk on the roof? And the guy goes, how did you know there was junk? He said, I came by helicopter. (laughs) In our lives, and in the lives of others, there are times where we mourn because we've been found out. When you can get away with something, think back to when you were little. When you can get away with something, then it's clever. But when you get caught... What happens? You start beating yourself. How? Why did I do that? That was ridiculous. That was... Ah. 
and you mourn the fact that you've been found out. And in the Bible there's instances of that as well, where you don't get your own way. Where things don't work out the way that you had planned. And you mourn the fact that it hasn't worked. Think of Judas. Judas Iscariot. He wanted to force Jesus into being, into revealing who he thought Jesus was. The one that was going to save the people. And so he went and he made a deal, didn't he, with the chief priests for 30 pieces of silver. And he thought, I'm going to force Jesus to show all the power that I've seen. He's going to reveal himself. Here he is in Jerusalem. He's going to reveal himself as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is the Messiah that's going to set up the new Israel. The Romans are going to be defeated, kicked out, because how can you stand against that kind of power? I've seen him raise people like Lazarus from the dead. I've seen him heal people and cast out demons and walk through a crowd when they were there ready to stone him. How can anybody stand against him? And so Judas then went to betray Jesus, to put him into a little corner where Jesus had to act. But he didn't understand what Jesus was all about. And it says in Matthew's Gospel, that afterwards, when he realised what he had done, in Matthew uh, 27, 3-5, said he mourned the fact of what he'd done and then he went off and killed himself. He was so full of remorse, so full of, of that kind of mourning and grief about what had happened that he couldn't face it, so he went off and killed himself. Sometimes we mourn like that too. But that's not what Jesus is talking about either. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6. This is the commissioning of Isaiah, the great prophet. It says he's taken up into heaven and he sees this picture of the seraphim covering and the throne and everything else. All of them are calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6. At the sound of their voices, verse 4, doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. And what is his reaction? He says, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. That's what Jesus is talking about. That sense of mourning the fact of who we are before a holy God. Recognizing our insufficiency, our sinfulness when we stand before God. In Luke 5, do you remember when Jesus called Peter? And he had been out fishing all day, caught nothing. Jesus said, get into the boat, go out there, drop your nets down where I'm going to tell you. And then every fish in the Sea of Galilee started jumping into the net. And he had to call his mates over. And what was Peter's reaction? He jumped out of the boat. He went to Jesus. He fell at his feet and he said, get away from me. Because I am a sinful man. That's the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about here. Blessed are those who mourn. Who recognize their insufficiency and their sinfulness before a holy God. 
How do I know that that's the one he's talking about? Well, look back in Isaiah 61, because that's the context of which this passage is written. If you look in Isaiah 61, you'll know it well. The the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release for the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God. What does he say? To comfort all who mourn. And to provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Now Isaiah here is talking about a people who are in exile. They've been carted off because they've sinned against God. They've done everything they could to upset God. And God, they made this treaty, this covenant with God. And said, we're going to follow you, God. And God said, well, if you do that, I'm going to protect you and look after you. And they broke their part of the deal. And the deal was with God, if you look in uh, Deuteronomy 28, it says, if you break this deal that you're making, it's, it's your choice whether you want to make this or not. But once you've made this covenant, it's binding. And if you break the covenant, then there's going to be these consequences. And here they are living in the consequences of breaking the covenant, of their sinfulness. And yet God says, here, you know what, there's a future for you. Even though you're mourning right now, because they're looking back at Jerusalem, they're seeing the temples completely destroyed. They see their land completely ruined. And they're stuck in exile thousands of miles away. And yet God says there's still a future. You see what Jesus is saying to us is blessed. The blessings of God will pour upon those people who recognize where they are before a holy God. And they repent. They turn around. Look back just a couple of chapters before in Isaiah 59. It says sin, confession and redemption, doesn't it? At the top. It talks here about just before when when God gives that, that amazing word that he uses in Luke's gospel when he goes into the synagogue. Jesus used that uh, Isaiah 61 as his kind of mission statement for what he came to do. But look before that in Isaiah 59. Verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins has has hidden his face from you, so he will not hear. Your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken lies, and your tongue mutter, mutter wicked things. No one calls for justice, no one pleads his case with integrity. Look down verse 6, their deeds are all evil. Acts of violence are in their hands. Their feet rush into sin. Again, their thoughts are evil thoughts. The way of peace they do not know. Verse 12. For our offences are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. Our offences are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities, rebellion and treachery against the Lord, turning our backs on our God. That's what repentance is all about. Coming to God, recognizing where we are, what we've done, what we haven't done, and asking Him to turn us around. Repentance is literally that. 
It's really walking in one direction, realizing we're going the wrong way, making a new turn and going the other way. That's what it is. It's turning around. It's saying, I was going this way. The people of Israel were going their own way. So we don't need God. You know, we've got victories. We're doing all right. Thanks very much, Lord. We're going to go our way. So they're walking this way. And then they get into trouble. And they get into exile. And in exile, they realize what's happened. That they've turned their back on God. God is over there. And they're walking away. And then they repent. And they say, Lord, I'm sorry. Turn me around. And what God does is he turns you around so that you start walking towards him. Face to face. Rather than walking away from him. There's three ways God does that for us. Firstly, he does it as an initial thing. 2 Corinthians verse seven, uh, chapter 7, 10 to 11. He talks about a godly sorrow. That we have this sorrow within us. That sometime in our life, if we're going to come to know who the Lord Jesus Christ really is, there needs to be that sorrow within us. There's that recognition that we are walking the wrong way. For me, it happened when I was a young teenager, sitting in a party. And I sit in there with bottles of alcohol at this party of somebody I didn't even know, just because friends knew who they were and I turned up. And I'm sitting there thinking, what direction is my life going in? I'm going the wrong way here. This is not going to end anywhere. And I said, Lord, if you are really there, if you who are who you say you are, turn me around. And in that moment, God switched me right around. And I started walking towards him. I started walking with him instead of walking the other way. But many of us have too much pride in our lives. We say, no, I can handle it, Lord. I can do this. Just, just leave it with me. My shoulders are broad enough. I don't really need you. Thanks very much. And I can do it my way. And it's only when God puts that sorrow in our hearts that, that enables us to recognize where we're going, recognize the end of the journey, recognize what we're doing, that we can then come with that kind of humility that we need and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I've messed up. Forgive me and help me to go the other way. And all of us who enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ need to come to that moment. We need to invite Christ in, in a relationship. A relationship always starts. I can remember the first time I met Inika. There was a starting point. It didn't just gradually happen. I remember the first time I saw her. I remember the first time we had a conversation. I remember where we were. can't remember what I said. But I remember the kind of occasion that it happened and it's the same with the relationship with Jesus. You have to invite him. He's standing there knocking and saying, can I come in? And you have to open the door and let him inside. Say, Lord, I want you to be part of my life. Come in. I want you to take control of my life. Not what I want, but what you want. That's what we're going to pray next week in the covenant service. Your will be done in all things. And the start of that is this kind of sorrow. 
A sorrow that leads to a realization that my pride, that my arrogance is the thing that nailed Jesus to that cross. The thing that causes us to have the communion service where we remember his broken body and his blood poured out. That I am responsible. That Jesus had to die to have that kind of relationship with me. But I can do nothing to fix the problem. I'm walking this way, but I cannot turn myself around. Only Christ can do that. It's like one of those little toys that you wind up, you know? And you set it off. And it just goes marching off in one direction, doesn't it? The only way you can turn that toy around is if you physically pick it up and stick it the other way. And it marches off back the other way. And if you put it on a table and it just goes along, I should have brought one, shouldn't I? Comes along, you have to physically do it. And that's what Christ does for us. We cannot do it. Christ does it. That's what grace is all about. And he does it willingly. He says, all you need to do is ask me and I'll turn you around. The first thing Christ does in repentance is that he starts that relationship with us by turning us around. Connecting us back to him. The second thing he does is that kind of continual mourning that goes on. Psalm 51, amazing psalm. Psalm that David wrote when he was, do you remember when he sinned with Bathsheba? You remember Bathsheba was married and David was there, his troops were out in battle. David saw and went, oh, she's a bit of alright. Fancy her and I'm king. And, and then word gets back to him that she's married. But he can't get her out of his head, so he, he, he develops this plot that her husband, Uzziah, will go into the battle, he'll be out the front, and then he tells his troops to pull back when Uzziah's there, so he'll be killed. And then she'll be a widow, and then he can marry her. Perfect plan. And it all goes great according to plan, until the prophet Nathan turns up. Because God tells him to go and confront David. And he confronts David. And David then writes as a response, Psalm 51. He says, search me, know me, know my inmost thoughts. He's there pouring out his continual repentance towards God. He's there taking seriously the outcome of the decisions that he's made. He's there focusing on his relationship with God and saying, God, this is the most important thing in my life. Do you remember she becomes pregnant? And God says, you know what? The baby's going to die. And then David's there. He's, he's mourning. He's fasting. He's praying. He's there focusing on God. Just interceding and praying and getting his relationship sorted out. And there's that sense of repentance where we take our focus sometimes off of God and it goes on to other things. You all know what I mean. If there's a noise at the back of the church, what do you do? You immediately stop listening to me and you're all like... Or if I'm looking at you, then you're kind of like, Oh, I wish you'd stop looking at me so I can look around and see what's going on. 
understand. Why? Because you go, I want to know, I want to know. And we do that in our relationship with Christ so often, don't we? Another noise goes on in our life somewhere else and we take our focus off of God and we move it on to something else. And Christ says there's that continual process of saying, of feeling that mourning inside of us and saying, Lord, I've messed up again. I've taken my eyes off of you. I've put them on the things around me instead of on you. Forgive me. Refocus me back to where you are so that I can keep those that attention on you. Because it's when we have our focus on him that he can work in us and through us to our blessing and the blessing of others. And then there's, there's also a sense in the Bible, in Matthew 23, 37, 38, Jesus here is weeping over Jerusalem. There's a sense of our corporate responsibility and our corporate mourning for ourselves and for one another. You know, like, if you get a paper cut on your finger, do you know how painful that is? It's horrible, isn't it? I don't know why they make paper so sharp. They should blunt the edges or something. They call it card, I suppose, but then, but anyway. But it affects the whole, you know, like, you're going around your business and then something touches that finger, it's like, oh, isn't it? And it just, it's there. And it's like that with the family of Christ. If one of us takes our eyes off Jesus, it affects all of us. We don't like to think like this. We like to think that it's just me and Jesus. Pure and simple. Me and my relationship with God. But it's not true. We're a family together. Paul describes it, doesn't he? The body of Christ. And there's all these, the vine and everything else. We're all interconnected together. We're all part and parcel of the same thing. So when one of us sins, when one of us takes our focus off of God, when one of us walks, starts walking this way, away from God, it affects everybody in the body. We're all there. We're all caught up with the consequences of one another's actions. And likewise, when we're all walking together, then you can see the fullness of the blessing of God. Because we're all there supporting and encouraging and being the family that God wants us to be. Jesus says the second characteristic that we need to have is that mourning, that sense of loss, that sense of anguish in our lives when we sin, when we turn away from God, when we put ourselves back on the throne. But he said, blessed are those who have that. Why? Because they will be comforted. Why is Jesus so serious about this? Well, because in John 10.10 it says that he's come that we might have life and have it abundantly. And what happens is that every time we become disobedient, every time we start taking our focus off God, every time we start walking the other way, we limit the abundance that God wants to pour into our lives. Think of it like this. Have you ever tried to unblock a drain or a plug? You know, you stick your down there, like, and eventually you gunk out, don't you? It's one of the most disgusting things you ever have to do, isn't it? First of all comes those of hair, usually. 
then attached to the bottom of hair is stuff. Then nobody knows what it is. It's just kind of grease and horrible stuff, isn't it? But what happens if you don't do that? You're going with different techniques now of how you do it. Your drain just gradually fills up and fills up, doesn't it? They, they were saying, this is an aside really, but they were saying that like the, the main drains, there's kind of like lumps the size of double-decker buses of this stuff. Isn't that, like, that put you off your lunch, isn't it? It's terrible. Because we just pour it down, it adds and it congeals into this like massive kind of icebergs of gunk that are flowing through our sewers. Anyways, that's what happens. But if we don't clean that out, what happens? Your pipes become smaller and smaller and smaller. And then your drains get blocked up and you have an overflow outside or something happens and it all just gets blocked. And that's what happens when we take our eyes off Christ. When we start going our own way. It's like we're not clean anymore. We're not, we're not open for Christ to pour out his blessing through us. He said, I have come that you might have full life. And he's desperate to give everything that he has available for you and for me, to us. He's desperate. He says, I've got all this stuff I want to put in, in your life that will make it amazing. This is what I want to do in you and through you. But you're all kind of blocked up. Let me cleanse you. Let me clean you out. Let, let, me, let me just empty that. It's like when you're in the kitchen. Why is it when you're in the kitchen and you need a particular bowl, it's always full of stuff and it's in the fridge? What is that? It's always the right bowl that you need. But you can't then just go, well, I'll forget about the stuff that's in there and just bung my stuff on top. You have to empty it out first, wash it, so you can put the new thing inside of it. God wants to do that in you and in me. He said, I've got so many things I want to pour into you and through you. But how can I do that? That's what he's talking about with the comfort. They will be comforted. Why? Because when we turn back to God, we receive that salvation, that relationship with God, that ongoing cleansing and filling that happens time and time again. And we end up being in eternity with God having the presence of Christ and his spirit living and dwelling in us now and for all eternity Jesus said blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted how desperate are you for a close relationship with Jesus Christ how desperate do you mourn the fact? Do you cry because actually you want more of Christ? And you're saying, Lord, I just want more of you. I need more of you. I remember that time where we had that relationship, but I want it to grow. And you're that desperate that you cry over it. Because you so desperately want it. What's separating you right now from that deeper relationship with Christ? How often do you ask for forgiveness from God? Do you wait once a week till you come to church? 
Imagine if I did that with my wife. You know? Messed up on Monday. So I'm, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness till Sunday. Because I'm only going to ask for forgiveness once a week. That's not a relationship, is it? When you mess up with someone else or they mess up with you, you just go straight away and you say, I'm sorry. Let's, let's sort this out. Because I don't want this to get, uh, be a barrier between us. Let's just sort it out now. Do you do that with God? Every moment saying, Lord, I want more and more and more of you. Because that is the comfort that Christ wants to bring. The peace of God, which is beyond all understanding. The presence of God, which knows no limits. The abundance of God. From everything in the storehouses of heaven that he is wanting to give you. Let us pray. Lord, you said, blessed are those who mourn. Teach us how to mourn the loss of that relationship with you. Because the truth is, for each of us, it could be so much more. And you're longing to give us so much more. But so often we're half-hearted, we're preoccupied in our own world with our own things. And we don't really mourn the loss of everything that you want to give to us. We look at others and we, we marvel at them, even though we know we're not supposed to compare ourselves. And we make excuses why that's not us. But Lord, the truth is that you have amazing abundance for each one of us. All different, all unique, but all equally amazing. Teach us how to mourn everything that gets in the way of that relationship and realizing the potential you have for each of us. Help us to recognize when we mess up and to attain, to cleanse us so that we can have more and more of who you are living in us and through us. For we ask this in the name of Christ. Amen.